it's time to share your story. Welcome to Revealing Conversations with Patron Nicole. Heart-led discussions that reveal, release, and unveil. You will leave this hour lighter, brighter, and inspired. And now, here's Patron Nicole. Good morning, everyone. Here is Petra again from Portland, Oregon. I uh, just returned uh, a few days ago from Europe, and I've got to say it's a lot easier to fly there than it is to come back. And the jet lag just got me. So I wake up every morning at 2.30, and then by 10 or 11 o'clock, I'm ready to go back to bed. So if any of you world travelers out there are listening to this, I know you can understand it. So I probably have to take a nap after the show today. So um, the weather's been interesting on my day of arrival. It took us three hours from the airport to get to downtown Portland, but we never did make it to Lake Oswego. So we checked into a hotel and stayed there safely. And we heard the next day that there were Hundreds and hundreds of cars on the side of the road, just abandoned cars. And Eugene was completely iced over. We heard there were tens of thousands of people out of power. And luckily now things are melting and everybody is happy and it's getting slightly warmer again. So, but I'm happy to be back home in Oregon in beautiful, beautiful Portland and uh, glad to be here. So today I have a wonderful, wonderful guest to introduce to you. Uh, His name is Dr. Steve Taubman, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, since it sounds like a German name. (laughs) And uh, Steve's uh, introduction was really fun for me to read, because it says how an ex-neurotic ex-Long Island chiropractor underwent a personal life transformation that led to his helping others discover the key to their success. And he has a method to unclog your brain. And don't we all need to unclog our brain right before Christmas when things can be so stressful for people and everybody's rushing around trying to buy gifts, and, and uh, there's just uh, there seems to be more intense energy out there. It's called the Unhypnosis Method, that uh, book that Steve wrote. Uh, Steve's early years were plagued by crippling anxiety, depression, and low self-esteem. Uh, despite graduating valedictorian from one of the nation's top chiropractic colleges and Running a thriving practice, Dr. Steve found that his outer success did little to calm his inner turmoil. So any of you out there that are suffering with um, anxiety and depression or low self-esteem, I lived with someone, I had a partner who suffered from anxiety, and I did not understand anxiety attacks until I had a partner that was plagued by that, and I can tell you, that it is very, very difficult to overcome. So I, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Steve, Dr. Steve to you right now. So, Steve, are you on the other line? Welcome to the show. I'm with you, and I'm going to try to keep you awake, too. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. My voice is probably a little bit subdued, like it's midnight or something right now. <laughs> well, it is for you probably, right? It, 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 it feels like it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, well, welcome to uh, to my show. I, I'm, it's such a pleasure. Now, we're, you're on the East Coast right now, aren't you? Yeah, we've got our share of winter weather, too. I've been uh, slipping and sliding down the bike path with my dog, Woody, and uh, but also just enjoying the stellar beauty of the winter. I love it. It's uh, it's something that I think most of us could, could benefit from, you know, getting past our fear of cold and getting out and enjoying the view. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm one of those four-season girls. I love snow and I love skiing. So for me, winter is probably my favorite season. So. Mm. That's <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, um, talk. can you uh, speak to us a little bit about your early um 
you know, adulthood, I don't know when you actually became conscious of the fact that you had anxiety. A lot of times we don't even know what's going on with us until, you know, eventually someone says, hey, I think you have an anxiety attack or I think you, you're suffering from depression. So, so can you speak on that a little bit? Well, it certainly started very early in life for me, and uh, and you're right. I think what we do, especially when we're very young, is that we interpret our emotions as reality. So if you're feeling anxiety or if you're feeling um, some kind of a, a anxiety-type feeling, insecurity, uh, you interpret that as meaning there's something wrong with me. I don't I don't fit mm-hmm. in, I don't belong with other people. And so it's a very isolating kind of a thing. And it took me years to realize that first of all I wasn't alone, that there were a lot of people who suffered with this. And second of all that there were things that I could do uh to uh you know to begin to to rise up above it. And I guess the third thing and maybe the most important thing and, and maybe the most important part of my message at least when I'm talking to people about that subject is um, there's a gift in all this, you know, that there's something uh, not just painful, not purely difficult, but also enlightening and possibly uh, uplifting about having suffered with things like this. So that's kind of why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you were a, a chiropractor when you actually found out you were you were having a thriving practice when you actually became conscious of the of your anxiety and depression at that time well what happened or, was yes i was I, I had a very successful chiropractic practice but i had a really narrow um kind of a narrow tolerance for uh, for uh, how people were doing so if people weren't getting better successfully or quickly enough I would get really uncomfortable and I would feel really um, uneasy around those people. So, you know, and, and naturally, you know, in any medical field, you can't count on a hundred percent success rate. Nobody can. Mm-hmm. But if I got anything less than that, I would feel uneasy. So it was very obvious to me that I had a problem because, you know, I, was, I had a pretty high success rate in my practice and yet I still felt, insecure or sometimes I'd walk in the room with a patient and feel kind of guilty even though I was doing everything within my power and they might have been making some progress and maybe more than they ever had before but it wasn't what I'd hoped so you know so I was beside myself and you know I'd I'd feel panicky and I'd feel um, kind of small I guess you would say Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, I think I think that uh, more people um, experiencing this uh, sort of um, these sort these emotions than is even really communicated. You know, I think right. it's a very large people that go through that. And I know I, I I mean I identify with this what you just said. I completely do. It's like always having to perform utmost. At, 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 you know, if I made any kind of mistake, I'd totally beat myself up. Right. And uh, and then a, a, a sense of wanting to be isolated. You know, not going out or or avoiding crowds, avoiding groups, that sort yes. of thing. So. But I think I'm somewhat like that still. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because I'm, uh, there's been more written lately about this concept of uh, of extroversion and introversion. And I always thought that in some ways I was an extrovert because I was very, you know, if I was out, I would, I guess, become very outgoing. And, of course, I'm a performer, so that makes people think of me as an extrovert. But my, my comfort zone is when I'm back home you know, just by myself with my dog, that's what I need to replenish my batteries. Mhm. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I I and people laugh when I say I'm an introvert. They say, Oh no, no way, you're not an introvert, you're an extrovert and I said, No not really. It took me uh fifty years to figure that out that I was yeah. actually an introvert. <laughs> that's a great insight. <laughs> I think a lot of people would do well to appreciate that about themselves and say, okay, this is where do you feel not just most comfortable, but where do you get your energy back? Do you get your energy back when you're alone or do you get it when you're with people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
true, very true. So um, now you studied uh, or explored Western psychotherapy and also the Eastern teachings of mindfulness and hypnosis and so forth. And so I'm assuming that that really helped you um, understand yourself better. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think I probably did everything there is to do. Uh, you know, I went through conventional psychotherapy, and I um, did the uh, the landmark training. Back then it was the EST training uh, and the opening the heart workshops. And, um, oh, gosh, there were just so many of these sorts of things that I did. I got a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, but what really, really helped me transform was the mindfulness work. That was the stuff that really uh, helped me uh, to detach myself from the emotional grip of what I was feeling. And it's what I, what I teach people and what I think is most important is for us to learn how to get out of our heads and into our bodies, get out of our heads and into the present moment. And it's something that we're not taught and it's not encouraged in our society. And what happens is that we end up thinking a lot and thinking that we're going to be able to think our way out of our negative thinking, which just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Very true. So, so uh, speak to us a little bit about uh, the mindfulness training, uh, so that the listeners on the on the line today can understand a little bit what you mean by that. Sure. Okay. Well, that's great. So, for me, the ver my first exposure to this idea of mindfulness training was in a was in a one day workshop uh, that I took with a with a local uh, meditation teacher. Uh, here in Burlington, Vermont, and that was now probably close to 30 years ago. And at the time, uh, I was absolutely suffering with anxiety and lots of emotional distress. And I sat in a room with a group of people, and he instructed us to uh, to observe the feelings in our bodies. To just sit there, not you know, not get caught up in what you're thinking, or not to get caught up in. Um, evaluating whether this is working or not, but just to kind of keep on bringing our attention back to the physical sensations in our bodies. And what happened was a lot of feelings came up, and then I would observe them, and then they would change. And it was kind of like something I'd never experienced before. All of a sudden, I, I, I had this sense that I was observing this ever-changing process of of, of sensation happening in my body and and what what happened was I woke up from that state feeling very clear very alert very awake and when the workshop ended I hopped on my bike and I took a bike ride down the Burlington bike path and there used to be this very scary dog at the end of the bike path who was on a you know one of those chains that is attached to a runner that goes back and forth across the yard and constantly, whenever I rode by, this dog would always kind of run up the side of this hill almost to the bike path and, and growl and bark, and it would always scare me. And this time, as I was going up the bike path, I didn't, I didn't see the dog come up out of the, the ravine where he was. And I looked down, and I see the dog is now, uh, his, his leash had gotten wrapped around a fallen log. And he, he was kind of stuck where he was. And I was like, oh, gosh, i got to do something. And I got off my bike. Now, this was a very ferocious-looking pit bull with, like, saliva dripping down its face and a really mean, scary face. And, and I, I got off my bike without thinking about it, and I went down to where the dog was, wrapped around this log. And I got on the ground, and I started unwrapping the dog's chain from the log. Now, the dog was pretty much face-to-face -face with me. And at first, it was giving me this really scary look that turned into a look of curiosity, that turned into kind of a look of gratitude, and then the dog kissed me. Aww. And I, and I finished unwrapping the, the, the chain, and then I, you know, the dog was free, and I went back up, and I hopped on my bike, and I, drove, and I rode away. And it was only a few minutes later that I realized that this entire thing had happened with no sense of fear at all. There was, like, literally nothing resembling fear inside of me. Now, I lived with constant fear. And what I came to realize and what I've come to realize since is that what, what mindfulness training does is it makes you very present, very clear, and very much in the moment. You're not stuck in the past or the future. And fear requires the past and the future. 
If you're completely present in the moment, you don't feel fear. And that's what happened. Fear and presence can't coexist. So I started learning and realizing that just being able to get very quiet and very present in my body, quieting my mind, that fear would drop away. I would no longer have it because I was no longer feeding it with thought. Mm-hmm. So the analogy yeah, I use I mean, now is that um, our our anxiety, our difficulties, our distress, and this also includes um, our frustration, our anger, um, disappointment, any of those uh, afflictive emotions, all of these afflictive emotions are fed by our thoughts. So typically what will happen is something will, will occur in your life and it will trigger off a feeling. And once you've got that feeling, especially if it's a feeling that's common to you, that feeling will then flip off another set of neurons, which will cause you to start thinking the thoughts that are consistent with that emotion. So your thoughts create your emotions, and then your emotions create more thoughts of the same type. And we find ourselves ruminating and churning about things. You know, so if you've been in a fight with a loved one, you just sit there and you think about all the ways you're right and they're wrong, and you think about what you're going to do to get even or make or prove that you're right, and then you think back about all the times that they did it to you before and how they're not going to do it again, and you basically write an entire script in your head, and the more you indulge that script, the more angry you feel inside. So the... Mm-hmm. The myth that we're telling ourselves, the lie that we're telling ourselves, is that I'll be able to think my way out of this feeling. If I could figure out how to do something differently, then I'll be able to no longer have to feel this way. When the reality is that the feeling can be dissolved free of the thought. And in fact, every time we add another thought to this complex of emotions and thoughts, what we're doing is it's almost like throwing a log on a fire. And as long as you keep throwing logs in the fire, the fire keeps burning. But when you stop throwing logs in the fire, the fire eventually goes out. Exactly. And, so and I, I love, I love that. Uh, what you just said about, um, uh, thoughts and how we're fueling the same uh, emotion that the thoughts are fueling the emotion and uh, the vision that I always have about that is when uh, speaking about how we have these neural nets in the brain and they fire these neural nets and how we can actually we actually have the power to rebuild these neural nets and I I uh, remember in Bavaria when I used to go cross-country skiing, there are these deep, deep grooves that go in the snow where people go along with their cross-country skis. And it's kind of like that. Is when you have the same thought about money, for example, and you keep thinking that you're living in scarcity, you're living in scarcity, there's never enough, never enough, then uh, that fuels that emotion and that fear reaction, that, that, that response. And then uh, as we change uh, and into mindfulness and meditation, uh, people can literally overcome anything that, that is, may appear to be an impossible obstacle. So I, I love the work you do, Steve. That's incredible. Thanks, and I love that. That metaphor is a wonderful metaphor. You know, we, we talk about how, how deep are the grooves and what are they grooved into, you know, using the analogy of, uh, of, of cross-country ski tracks across the snow uh, or the ice, that's, that could be a pretty deep groove, and it could be a pretty hard groove to break out of. Um, but there are worse, right? I mean, you could dig a groove in a rock, and then it's a much deeper and much more, and much more permanent sort of a groove. Um, but if you try to dig a groove into water, it won't happen, right? You could drive your hand along, uh, along the water, and then the water just fills right back in again. It's liquid, and so it doesn't form grooves. And when we become more liquid, we don't form grooves. We, we experience the world as, you know, things happen, but then they smooth themselves back out because we're not going over the same, the same exact line over and over again and digging a groove in. Mm-hmm. 
So the mm-hmm. challenge, how do you get out of that track? Or how do you keep yourself from getting in that track in the first place? And I think one of the most powerful tools is to recognize that certain things feel right because of the neural net, because it's what we're used to. So it feels right to think poverty thoughts, for example. It feels right to be worried because it's, those, that's where the grooves lie, which means that in order to think more empowering thoughts, you're going to have to feel like it's not right. It doesn't feel right to think I am abundant. It doesn't, I mean, it, you could say it, but are you really going to think it? Is it going to really resonate with the emotion? And the answer is no. So we have to approach this entire process with, with an appreciation for the fact that we're, that we're working against an emotional gravitational force. We're being gravitationally pulled into what we're used to. And we need to, we need to break out of that gravitational force. We need to essentially get in orbit. We need enough emotional strength, enough discipline, enough consistency to break free of the gravitational force of our usual thinking that's only gotten us where we are now. So what do we do with all that emotion? What do we do when, when I, you know, what, what did I do, for example, when I said, okay, I'm not going to live my life with the idea that I'm not good enough? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is I'm going to, I might say I'm good enough, but I'm going to feel like it's a lie. What do I do with that mm-hmm. feeling? Right? And what I do is I learn to observe each feeling as if it is merely a sensation, which really is all it is. In other words, if I could sit by the sidelines, so to speak, and notice that in the moment I feel an emotion, that that emotion is really nothing more than a complex of sensations in my body. And that becomes my focus rather than whatever thoughts produced it in the first place. So let's say I have a fight with my girlfriend and I'm really angry. The grooves that I would usually jump into would be all the grooves we just talked about. My neural net would basically force me to reinforce all the negatives of what just happened. But if I were to sort of freeze the frame and stop thinking about the thing that caused me to feel this way, you know, maybe I have to get up from the table and go to the bathroom. Maybe I've got to, you know, take a walk, but I, but I remove myself from the situation. So I've got a little bit of breathing room. And if I could then turn my attention away from the thing that caused me to feel this way, And instead, just look at the feeling itself. Ah, I'm feeling tension in my stomach. Ah, my face is warm. Ah, I'm uh, I'm gritting my teeth. Ah, I feel a little um, heat rising up on my forehead. And just sort of sit and observe the sensation. What happens is that it begins to dissolve of its own accord. Because I'm no longer throwing wood on the fire. I'm no longer thinking about what caused me to feel that way. I'm not avoiding the feeling by trying to fix the problem. I'm simply leaning into the feeling. And Mm -hmm. this is so powerful for those of us who have things like anxiety, because often we can't identify what caused us to feel it in the first place. And so we just sit there trying to figure it out. We try to think back. We make up theories. We tell ourselves stories It's all meaningless. It's all nonsense. It doesn't get us anywhere. But when you learn to just sit and observe the sensation with equanimity, meaning with with a a balanced, calm mind, with acceptance, that's when you begin to notice that all of those feelings are just, as you said, grooves in the snow. And eventually those grooves fill in. Because otherwise it's just snowballs. It's, because it's, just snowballs, yeah. That's Getting back to the snow thing, I love the metaphor of snow with this. Because remember, as kids, you make a small snowball and you run it down the hill or something. And before you know it, it's become this huge snowball. And that's exactly how these thoughts are 
uh, these daunting, uh, haunting thoughts that we have. Um, I was uh, uh, speaking to one of my relatives who's, who's had a very difficult time in life, and um, you know she she suffers from anxiety and depression, and. Uh, her best friend, she's now almost 80 years old, and her best friend threw herself in front of a train in Munich. Oh, my God. And I, I asked her, why did she do that? She said, well, she anxiety and depression, you know. Mm. And, and there are people that feel so lost or so helpless that they don't see a way out of this. When you know, in that, in in fact, there is there is a, a possibility to release this, and to, I mean, I have I have lived with someone who suffered from severe depression and ended up dying uh, due mm. to suicide. So I understand that it can, you know, we can speak those words to people, and we can say, you know, here, why don't you practice mindfulness? But it's you know, when someone is in it, it is um, often to the point where they cannot hear anything else. It's like literally this dark cloud right above them. And well, you see, this is why, it. Petra, that we need to uh, we need to raise our children differently. We need mm-hmm. to uh, take responsibility for ourselves, even if we're not beyond, you know, or especially when we're not beyond help, because. All of this is really an energy regime, right? It's basically, do you have the necessary strength to not fall into the abyss? There's something Mm -hmm. exceptionally, I use the word gravitational because that's what it is. There's a gravitational pull that is so strong toward our usual way of thinking. And if our usual way of thinking is, it causes us, us to suffer, then if we don't start to develop the strength, to have control over where our focus goes, then we're going to get pulled in. And when you suffer with biochemical imbalances that cause things like depression and anxiety, you're already kind of like you already have one foot in that hole. It's very easy to fall in. So everyone that I work with, we talk about, about what does it take to develop the energy, the strength, the discipline, the fortitude to keep from being pulled in so you're in over your head. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, that's why meditation is powerful. Medi- a lot of people avoid meditation because they think, oh, I tried meditating and it didn't work. And I say, well, what do you mm-hmm. mean it didn't work? Well, they'll say, well, you know, I tried it, but I kept thinking. And I'll say, well, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why you do it, because you're exercising your focus muscles. So your mind wanders, and then you bring it back to your point of focus. Maybe that's your breathing or the physical sensations in your body or whatever it is. You could be staring at a candle. At the beginning, it doesn't matter what your point of focus is. What matters is that you are committing yourself to constantly bringing yourself back to that point of focus. So I sit here, and I look at my feet. (laughs) It doesn't even matter what. I sit here and I look at my feet and my mind starts to wander off. And I say, oops, my mind wandered. I better bring it back to my feet. And then I start to feel some sense of discouragement. I go, oh, there is some discouragement. I better go back to my feet. And I constantly am aware, or I'm not constantly, where I'm aware a moment by moment by moment or again and again and again of how my mind wanders away which, which is a moment when I get to bring it back again. And each moment that it wanders, and I notice that it's wandered, and I bring it back, that's like the equivalent of doing one more push-up. Every, every moment that your mind wanders and you bring it back, you've just done one more push-up, you're getting that much stronger, and eventually you develop the strength to keep your focus in one place for a longer period of time. That becomes your, that becomes your salvation, so that when you are feeling uh, distressed, you are feeling imbalanced, you are feeling emotionally unbalanced in some way, you can bring your attention back to the core, bring it back to your breathing, bring it back to your center. And even though you know that there's something pulling you, you're not, you're not allowing yourself to be pulled into 
this abyss. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it is. Yeah, and it's exactly what you said. It is a muscle. Um, uh, I had a conversation last night with my partner. He was. We were talking about the voids. I, I, you know, it's that gap. Deepak Chopra writes about it. He calls it the gap, and he he said um, in in some of his writings that the the third eye, the pineal gland, in someone who meditates is the size of a silver dollar, and in a, in a person that's not meditating, it's about the size of a pea, and it's that muscle that we develop into the size of a, a silver dollar, and it's it's you know it's not about um, uh, being this perfect meditator. I mean, my God, you know, I spent 11 years in India meditating. And I, even after 11 years of meditating, 10 hours a day, I still had days where I could not focus or where my mind was wandering. And uh, there are days where you sit down and after five minutes, you're completely in a deep meditation. And then there are days where you feel like a million ants are crawling on you and you're working through something. But it is exactly that, uh, you know, focusing back, like you called it, looking back at your foot or, or using a focal point. I, I love uh, Vipassana meditation for that very reason, because it just, you know, whether your eyes are open or not, just being still and, and looking and focusing on something. And regardless of whether your mind is, do the, at the supermarket shopping or run or running around in a car or whatever, or thinking about a relationship, just bring it back and watch things go by like you're watching, um, you know, scenery go by when you're in a train, and it's yeah. just like that. So we're watching the thoughts just run by like scenery. And Beautiful. Yeah, and I'm a big the uh, meditation was a real turning point for me also. And I spent, you know, I've done a few uh, 10-day silent meditation retreats um, in Vipassana centers around the country. And um, it was really transformative to me because, you know, when you, when you study Vipassana meditation, um, you learn quite a bit of the underlying philosophy behind it. And the idea that, you know, they call Shila, Samadhi, and Panya, right? So Shila means, you know, before you can even begin to meditate, before you can begin to develop yourself spiritually, uh, you want to be a good person, right? It's not very easy to walk a spiritual path while you're simultaneously, you know, stealing or or causing harm in the world. So, you know, first and foremost is just being good, a good person. The second step, samadhi, is like learning to focus. What we've been talking about right now, this constant willingness to bring your attention back to the core of your being to this moment. And in Vipassana, that happens to be the physical sensations within your body. And then the third part is panya, meaning wisdom. And that's what you're talking about, that once you've developed a certain degree of, of focus, of samadhi, then the world has a different look to it. The things that you see around you don't pull you down. You just sort of have that, you know, it's just, the world is passing, you know, and that doesn't mean you become complacent. If anything, you become much more effective at dealing with, with the problems of the world because you're not bringing a lot of negative emotions into your work. So you become a more exactly. calm and balanced person who is able to, to observe and witness not only what you see outside of you, but what you see inside of you too. Because now you know who you are. You're not your thoughts. You're not your emotions. They don't have to run away with you because you sort of sense that there's a you beneath all of that. There's like there's that that witness, and it's it, it's so it's hard. You know, we're talking thing. around this, but it's so hard to uh, to give word to what we're talking about. It's something you have to experience. Well, as Alan Watts said it, he said, "What you're looking for is what's looking." Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> <laughs> You become the witness, exactly. I love that. <laughs> so, so it's a very or, uh, interesting journey, and you know what's what's cool about it in my world is that uh, I think everybody needs this to be part of their lives. But unfortunately, at least up to this point in time, 
it's usually you know the the seekers of spiritual truth and wisdom who um who embrace some of these techniques and it's not necessarily the um the business people and the politicians and the you know the the corporate moguls who are embracing this but but if they did it would be a very different world I was gonna I was gonna write a book about um, the utopian government of the future, uh-huh. and one of the things in that book is gonna be the idea of uh, leaders and what they stand for, and that they are actually very developed in meditation, you know, and 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 that leadership would be uh, based on their evolution in terms of how they can handle their emotions and through meditation and insight. So well, what a world that would be, right? Yeah, 200 years from now, 300 years, you know, if we're lucky enough that perhaps uh, there's some grace on this planet where uh, we, we will not be given a choice to evolve, but we will be required to evolve in this mm. way. And so that's that's my vision for the world, at least. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, love it. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I uh, the way that I'm trying to um, to frame this is I speak to um, to business people quite a bit. I speak to entrepreneurs and I speak to corporations, um, and and what I need to do is to to share um, first and foremost benefits that they can appreciate, you know, if, if you're a business person, if you're a salesman, for example, if you, if you get onto the fact that, that a mindful salesperson is going to be a more effective salesperson than one who isn't mindful, because you're going to have your mind and heart open, because you're going to spot opportunities that other people miss, uh, because you're going to be leading with your heart, because you're going to be a better listener, um, because you're not going to, because you're going to be aware of your own insecurities and not let them drag you down. So, so being a mindful salesperson also means being a more successful salesperson. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so when I'm working with an organization, I, for example, next week or a couple of weeks from now, I'll be speaking to a, a, a mass mutual uh, organization. Uh, so that's insurance and financial uh, services organization. And so uh, that's where I have to start. I have to start with I'm going to teach you some tools and techniques that are going to help you make more money, be more successful in the world. But what mm-hmm. you and I both know is that it's so much more than that. So mm-hmm. I, I, like, I like to call it an ethical bait and switch. <laughs> you know, like bait and switch, well, usually you think in terms of, uh, I'm going to lure somebody in and then give them something of less value than they came looking for. But with an ethical bait and switch, we're going to lure somebody in and then give them something of vastly greater value. So, you know, you're coming in looking to make a few extra bucks, but in the process, you're going to learn how to live a balanced life, how to be a more loving and compassionate person, how to be more patient, uh, how to be more confident, how to be uh, just generally more loving. And, oh, by the way, that also means that you're going to be more successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful that you're putting yourself out there in the corporate field, Steve. That's, that's really fantastic. So uh, what exactly is your website? Can you share that with our listeners today, please? Sure. So my website is my name, and it's Steve Taubman, Steve, T-A-U-B-M-A-N.com. No spaces or dashes, just stevetaubman.com. And, uh, and so that people get a hold of you through your website, through email? Yeah, yes. Um, there are a couple things there on the site. First of all, um, there are contact forms if you'd like to talk to me about, about a speaking engagement uh, or coaching or any of the other things that I might be able to do. Uh, you can sort of find that information right there on the site. And secondly, um, there are there are blog posts, which are articles I've written over the years that you might find interesting. And if you join my mailing list, uh, which you can do on almost any page, there's a form either at the top or the bottom. Um, those who join my mailing list will get a free 
digital copy of the first 40 pages of my book on hypnosis. So tell us a little bit about your book. Oh, it's it's my uh, it's my baby. You know, it's my labor of love. I wrote that book. Um, the book, I should say it this way: the book wrote itself. Um, I was I just sort of put myself in a state, and I just found myself writing almost like automatic writing. It just flowed out of me instantaneously. And the book is it's called Unhypnosis because we. I believe, are all hypnotized. We've all been programmed in many ways in life uh, to accept a limited version of who we really are or what we can really accomplish. So we're often trapped in bad relationships, bad jobs, uh, bad self-image, any number of things. And and that's all the result of the programming that makes us think that this is the best we can expect. We can't expect to do any better than this. But in my experience, you know, I've been uh, a a chiropractor, a magician, a hypnotist, a pilot, a speaker, an author, and life keeps getting better. Because what I keep discovering is that we're not trapped by our circumstances. Whatever we're doing, we we can change. And what does it take? What it takes is waking up from the hypnotic trance that we use to convince ourselves of our own immobility. I could never do that because I have kids. I could never do that because I don't make enough money. I could never do that because I'm not smart enough. It's all nonsense. So I wrote this book uh, around the concept of five layers of consciousness. And the first is that they're almost like an onion, right? Think of it like there's a, a ball and or an onion, and, eat, and there's a layer and then a layer outside of that and a layer outside of that. So the core layer, the core of the onion, so to speak, is your essence. Who, who are you beneath? If I stripped away your job and your title and your family of origin and your political beliefs and your religious beliefs, if I stripped all that away from you, what, what's left? Mm-hmm. What is there in the very core of your being? You know, what is it that's your kind of pure essence? And that's where we start. We start by learning how to find that because most of us never did. That's the meditative process, the mindfulness process, the getting quiet, uh, the the curiosity of becoming a witness to your own self and dropping down into a place of truth where you're connected to your higher power, where you're not, you know, making any of your decisions based on programming or, or uh, any, any sort of uh, culture enculturation. It's just the pureness of who you are. And once you've learned how to develop a relationship with your true self, then we start looking at the next layer out, which is your values and beliefs. What do I believe? What do I value? And mm-hmm. are, are these values and beliefs congruent? Am I, am I living uh, with beliefs that are congruent with, with what the core of my being says? You know, if I, you know, maybe I grew up in a family where, where I was told that I should, you know, hate people of a different race. Well, once I learn how to be mindful and I know what it means to be in the core of my being and these, these beliefs are no longer the, the deepest part of me, now I could be even deeper looking at them and saying, that doesn't serve me and that doesn't serve humanity. I'm going to let that one go. And so that's where you start yeah, to have... Uh... There are a lot of people that could really benefit from from uh, mindfulness training. And uh, uh, I, I wrote a, a book called uh, Seven Insights, which is a webinar. And one of the uh, seven insights is the insight of paradigm shifting. So uh-huh. you know, we also, many of us grow up with paradigms. And I certainly grew up, you know, with my Catholic paradigm, Bavarian paradigm. You know, people right after the war was over, Second World War, uh, you know, there was still a lot of uh, fear around foreigners entering the country. So there was there were a set of rules and values that I absolutely had to break down in order to be liberated out of my own uh, program or paradigm. And so, Beautiful. yeah, I completely relate to that. That, that is... Uh, that is the first step, that's for sure, especially in this world where we're seeing 
so much animosity and, you know, what just happened in Berlin yesterday. And, mm, yes. You know, it's going on all over the world and, and we're, we're witnessing these, um, uh, these terrorist attacks and, you know, we just have to not engage in the fear of it. There was a, I don't know if you caught that, Steve, but there was a program on the news about a little 11 or 12-year-old girl with writing operas that are being performed at the Vienna Opera House. Did you see that by any chance? No, I didn't. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, a little 12-year-old. She must be the reincarnation of Beethoven or Mozart or something, you know, because when you hear her speaking, she doesn't even really speak like a little girl. She speaks like she's uh, coming in with all this music from so many lifetimes. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't watch television. She doesn't play video games and she doesn't have an iPhone. And all she does is read books and compose music. So, you know, to me how some of us can really choose to just completely live in, in, a, in, a, in a, these outrageously fantastic worlds that come from no, you know, they cannot really be taught even by, the, by her parents. You know, it could be that uh, she just downloaded it all. You know, it, it was just it's so fascinating to me to see people like this that are at such a young age coming in with a set of uh, ideas and, and, and values that no one has even taught them. Like, where is all that stuff coming from? Do you ever wonder about that? All the time. Yeah, I'm always amazed by that. You know, that sort of is it the collective unconscious? Is it God? What is it? that we're downloading. And, um, you know, of course, we have no control over that, but what we do have control over is how much interference are we putting in the way? You know, mm-hmm. if, we could, if we could raise our kids with less uh, technology and with a little bit more of an appreciation for, uh, for literature and art and for silence, then, you know, then we're not going to raise a bunch of addicts like we are. Because we're all junkies, we're all you know we're all addicted to our thinking, and when we attempt to quiet down, the first thing that happens is that it's terrifying, it's hard, because because we're like junkies that you know we're pulling, we need our fix, you know I need my thinking, so but the wisdom that you're talking about, the wisdom to be able to sit and and choose a new way of being like, you know, the idea that there's this paradigm that I've been living with in my culture that foreigners are suspect and to have the wisdom to be able to say, that's not, that's a belief. That's a paradigm. That's a structure of thinking that doesn't work and that it just puts more misery in the world. I'm going to step out of that stream. So as I said, in my book and on hypnosis, the first thing is you develop enough wisdom, enough of a sense of the core of who you are so that you can be that person who, who looks at your own beliefs and values and, and makes changes when necessary. And then when you get to the third layer, which is goals, then the goals you set are no longer suspect. You know, a lot of people, they set these goals, they live their lives to try to buy a Maserati or a big house or, a, you know, whatever it is. I'm not saying those are bad things, but a lot of people – have no idea why they strive for what they're striving for because they're unconscious. They're just doing what the television told them to do. So becoming mindful and being uh, an architect of your own thoughts, beliefs, and emotions and, and values sets the stage for creating goals that are more in alignment with the higher and greater good. I want to, you know, I learned... You know, maybe some of your goals aren't about what you get. Maybe some of your goals are about what you give. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just saying to a friend of mine yesterday, uh, somebody that I'm coaching, that she was concerned about um, spending so much time to get to a certain goal, to achieve a certain goal. And I said, you know, it's not really the the destination. It's the journey. Because it's the, always the journey. It's if you're having fun during the journey, it doesn't getting to the destination is really not that important. If you're traveling around the world and and you have certain goals set to make, why wouldn't you enjoy the journey? <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. Because tomorrow you could 
you could die. And, you know, I love this, uh, the saying by, I think it was uh, uh, Chief Seattle who said it, you know, every day he will wake up in the morning and say, today is a good day to die. And that's one of my favorite things to say in the morning, because I always think about death. Every single morning I think about, okay, today could be my last day. So what am I going to do with this day today? If this is my last day today, how do I want to live it? Yep. Yeah, that's that's and using death as your ally. That's that's having wisdom. Not everybody. Most people see it with fear, and most people aren't conscious enough to know that that the journey that they're on is making them miserable. They're so busy hooked into the goal that they're not even noticing how the process is making them feel terrible. Amen. So we need to notice that. We need to notice, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree or maybe I've got the wrong attitude as I move toward that goal. And I need to, I need to reevaluate my, how I'm being. Mm-hmm. But you can only do that if well, you're mindful. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, I could, I could speak with you and uh, hang out over the phone with you, Steve, for hours and hours and hours. I don't think we'll run out of conversation, but unfortunately, our show is almost at the end. Uh, this <laughs> is an interview with Steve, Dr. Steve Taubman today. His website is www.stevetaubman.com. That is S T E V E. T-A-U-B-M-A-N.com. You can also find the link to his website on my Facebook page, a patron call. For those of you that may have missed the show today, we are going to uh, post it uh, as soon as we go off the air. And I am just very, very uh, happy that I got to meet you, Steve, and and uh, that you wrote this fantastic book, The Unhypnosis Method, Unclog Your Brain. So, uh, Steve, uh, thank you for joining us today and 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 you know creating some hope for people that are listening today and that may suffer from anxiety or depression or, or low self-esteem and, and helping people with your work and also going into the corporate field uh, with your insights and your wisdom. And I, I, I love that. Well, thank you, Patria. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I, we're obviously uh, like-minded and uh, you've, I could see you've done the work too. So uh, I, I hope that we continue these conversations. I do too, and and uh, we hope to see you out here on the West Coast soon. So we'll Absolutely, I'll be out. And we wish you a very Merry Christmas and an incredible New Year, and uh, the New Year is going to be exciting, no doubt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Well, Bye-bye now. Uh, to you. Yep. Thank you. To you, the listener out there, thanks for joining Revealing Conversations on Block Talk Radio today. Again, um, to listen to the podcast, just go to patronicole.com. That's P-E-T-R-A-N-I-C-O-L-L.com. You can also download my complimentary meditation CD, uh, MP3 download, or contact me for your half an hour uh, free coaching session. I would love to meet with you and uh, wish you all an incredible Christmas celebration uh just be mindful that's all i can say is take a moment and just walk in the forest or just breathe in deep and do a little qigong and stay out of stress so merry merry christmas to you all and see you next week ciao ciao